Warren Cass, Executive Director of American Compass, and welcome to the American Compass podcast. In his new book, Fulfillment, Winning and Losing in One-Click America, reporter and author Alec McGillis provides an eye-opening look at regional equality in America through the lens of the incredible growth of Amazon.com. On March 31st, Alec joined American Compass Research Director Wells King for a conversation that explored the lessons of Amazon, the pros and cons of One-Click America, and what policymakers and consumers can do to respond. Hello, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to this American Compass event. I'm Wells King, the Research Director of American Compass, and I am uh, delighted to be joined today uh, by Alec McGillis, a, uh, a, a reporter at ProPublica and author of the new book, Fulfillment, Winning and Losing in One-Click America. Alec, welcome, and congratulations on the book. Thanks very much. Th- thanks for having me. Um, it's really, really good to be here. Well, it's great to have you, and it, it, it's a really impressive book. You cover just a tremendous amount of ground, both figuratively and literally. Uh, uh, in, 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 in fulfillment, you, you cover several cities and regions, several decades, uh, at different levels and altitudes, too, from macro trends to individual narratives. It really is an impressive portrait of American life. Uh, but fulfillment is also a book about Amazon uh, and about the America that enabled Amazon to grow, into a colossus to transform the American economy and society. Uh, as you write at one point, over time and its astonishing proliferation, Amazon had segmented the country into different sorts of places, each with their assigned rank, income, and purpose. It had not only altered the national landscape itself, but also the landscape of opportunity in America, the options that lay before people, what they could aspire to do with their lives. So Alec, what is One Click America and why is Amazon so critical to understanding it? You know, this book really actually started out not about Amazon, but about these enormous disparities that I was seeing around the country when I would go around as a reporter. Um, probably even goes back to my growing up in, in Pittsfield, Massachusetts, um, you know, former GE town in Western Mass that just has fallen a long way from its sort, sort of peak in the mid 20th century. And it's now lagging so badly behind Boston, Metro Boston. Um, I, I saw that as I was growing up and was very bothered by it. And then I, again, as I traveled around the country as a reporter for the Washington Post and others um, in the Great Recession years, the early Obama years, seeing these incredible divides um, between sort of Midwestern cities and coming back to Washington, D.C. and seeing this incredible prosperity and complacency and disconnect with what's, what was happening out, out in the rest of the country. And I wanted to capture that in, in a book, especially after Trump's election. And and I decided to focus or frame the book through Amazon um, because um, for, for two reasons, um, two reasons that I sort of settled on that one click America as a, as a frame for what was happening. One was just that Amazon is now so extraordinarily ubiquitous in our country that it's just a handy thread to take you around the country because it is everywhere and it's everywhere in different ways. And, and it just sort of is a, is a very kind of good metaphor for sort of what we're becoming as a country because it is so omnipresent, but it's also, a good frame for for talking about these disparities because it is itself contributing to them. Um, the tech giants have, through their concentration of of so much of our economy, you know, in a, in a handful of companies, are are concentrating, helping concentrate wealth and prosperity in certain places. Um, and so that that's sort of how I got from regional inequality, regional disparities, to to Amazon um, as the frame for telling that story. Yeah, you spend a lot of time in the book in two particular winner-take-all cities, uh, 
the two Washingtons, Seattle and DC, or right. as Amazon would, 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 would call them, HQ1 and HQ2. Um, both have been transformed by the company, uh, but in different ways. Could you just describe a little bit the ways that they really sort of made Seattle and Washington what they are today and the power and influence they've used? Sure. Uh, no, actually, I, I picked Washington, D.C. as the second uh, winner-take-all city in the book to feature before Amazon chose it for HQ2. So that was serendipitous, I guess. Um, the, um, you know, Seattle, it's just astonishing what was happened to that city. That, um, you know, a city that was very much kind of a middle-class kind of town. Um, it started out, of course, as, as really kind of a more like a natural resource, natural resource outpost, you know, the, the place that you kind of brought the timber down from, from, um, from points north and east um, to, to ship off to San Francisco. And um, you could see when I first came to San, to Seattle in, in like 2004 or so, I was just so struck that you, that it just still felt like a, a natural resource outpost with big rail yards and, and, and the harbor and all that. Um, now it's just completely transformed and by principally by Amazon, which now has 45,000 people working there in the headquarters, uh, even more now, I think. Um, and, and it's just been, turn into this hyper prosperous kind of city where you have some of the the highest housing costs highest housing cost increases in the country really second only to, to San Francisco um, very few children it's the second highest rate of uh, the second lowest rate of, of children of any city in the country after San Francisco um, huge homelessness problem um, the what I focus on partly in the book is the complete displacement of of Seattle's historically black neighborhood, the Central District. Um, this once very vital black community that produced all these great musicians, um, and and just a, really just a complete change of the character of the city. Um, and and then in Washington D.C., um, you have a city that has over the last couple of decades, even before Amazon arrived, you know, has become, became the, essentially the wealthiest city in the country. If you're looking at the full metro area, five or six of the 10 wealthiest counties in the country. Um, and, and principally through the growth of, you know, first the lobbying industry, huge growth in the influence industry, and then the growth of the whole Homeland Security complex after 9-11. And, and now in the crucial, you know, winner take all moment, rich get richer moment is is Amazon's deciding to put its second headquarters there, um, despite the fact that the city is so crowded and expensive already. They decide that they that they want to be there. Um, their public reason for that, of course, is that that there's just a very skilled workforce. You have all these tech guys already there, tech guys and women, who are there already because of that sort of IT contractor universe. Um, so they want to be there to kind of be able to to. Um, to, to get some of that, that talent for their second head, second headquarters, but the um, but the other reason, of course, for them wanting to be there is that it's the seat of the federal government. And right now, the you know the largest threat to Amazon is not so much other companies, but it's the the threat of federal intervention, um, some attempt to, to rein them in, and and so it's useful for them to build up their presence there in town. And they've been doing that, of course, well before HQ two. Um, Bezos bought the Washington Post bought the biggest mansion in town, renovated it, total price tag of $35 million to turn it into sort of a salon, um, greatly increased their lobbying spending to the point where they're pretty much the biggest lobbying spenders, um, tons of federal contracts that they're getting for their for their cloud side, and now 25,000 jobs um, in a massive investment over in Arlington. So the presence of, the, of Amazon in DC is just extraordinary right now.
on the influence in government, I'm glad you pointed that out. I mean, you described that Amazon's vision is really commerce at its freest and most frictionless. And talk right. about when, when really when Bezos has sort of professed his belief in free markets and entrepreneurship. Um, but you spend, I think, a lot of time really trying to focus in on the ways that Amazon hasn't just disrupted old models and been a tech company, but to the extent to which it's actually used influence in government to accelerate its growth and to really become the behemoth that it is. Sort of, you talk about the Swiss army knife approach to this. Yes. What exactly is Amazon's relationship to government? And to what extent is it actually really an embodiment of free and frictionless markets? Or is it more a product of government subsidy? Well, yeah, the Swiss Army knife was a metaphor I used for there, just all the different forms of essentially tax avoidance that that the, that the company has, you know, um, prospered from and, and benefited from going all the way back, you know, to its to its founding when the its initial competitive advantage was had a lot to do with the fact that it did not have to assess sales taxes on on on, on its on sales like brick and mortar bookstores had to and in its initial decision to to put the company in Seattle had a lot to do with with that exact point that if 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 you the sort of the general rule was if you had physical presence in a state you had to assess sales taxes in that place so they didn't want to be in California where where all the other most of the other tech companies were, because then they would have had to assess sales taxes on the biggest market in the country. So instead, they go to a smaller state like where like like Washington State, where that's not as much of an issue. And then all for the years following, they kept even as they were growing, and even as it would have been helpful to have warehouses in big states where most of their buyers were, their customers were, they often avoided putting warehouses into into big states because that would again have meant they would have had to assess sales taxes there. So that that goes on and on for years. They, they didn't get to Ohio, for instance, one of the biggest states in the country until not long ago because with warehouses, because they didn't want to have to assess taxes there. So you have that, that whole sort of tax avoidance game. And then, and then of course, you have um, at the at the top level, federal income taxes they've been incredibly successful in in avoiding paying taxes there through um, through claiming very large losses through the sort of the Luxembourg game. Um, just a couple of years ago, they paid zero federal income taxes at all. Um, last couple of years, it's been more like a billion a year, which is you know nothing as a, as a as a percentage of their of their of their you know what, what they're bringing in. Um, but then the the key thing that I spent a lot of time in the book talking about the other part of the Swiss Army knife. Is this aggressive pursuit of subsidies from local governments? You know, when you're coming in, offering to build a warehouse or data center, just this incredibly aggressive pursuit of those subsidies, um, along with demands of secrecy. Um, and and I got a lot of emails back and forth showing showing all that um, that kind of pressure, those demands. And and it really is, if you think about it, just kind of a a twofold undermining of kind of local of, of government, um, and in the sense that you're both denying the revenues needed for basic services, services that you're going to be de demanding as your as as your trucks are going on the on the roads, and as your workers are falling ill in the warehouses, and so you're you're reducing the revenues, and then you're also reducing any kind of accountability and transparency um, through your demand of of total secrecy from from local officials. Yeah, it really is a striking pattern and strategy for economic development. Um, and I like the way you juxtapose it with the past, right? I, I, your, your, your treatment, for example, of Dayton, Ohio, and how it evolved from really an innovation hub in sort of uh, the Silicon Valley of its own day Definitely. Uh, into this post-industrial logistics hub 
that produces cardboard and sends it elsewhere. Um, right. Is this winner take all pattern of development? Is this really a novelty? Um, and how does it differ from past patterns of development and corporate behavior that you know? What we can say is that, um, first of all, that the, well, we, we've always, of course, had wealthy parts of the country and less wealthy, poorer parts of the country, of course. But those gaps have just gotten a lot bigger in recent decades, similar to the way that the gaps have grown so, so starkly on our income ladder between individuals. It's happened in places too. I mean, the some of the most, you know, there are two, two striking ways of like th thinking about this. One is that as recently as, as well, in the mid-1960s, the wealthiest 25 cities in the country by, by median income included all sorts of cities in the Midwest, um, including Cleveland, Milwaukee, Des Moines, and my favorite is Rockford, Illinois, Illinois, which now I mean, you go to Rockford, Illinois, and, and it just breaks your heart. And you think that this, this city was once top 25. Now only a small handful of the top 25 cities are not on the coast. But then another way of looking at it, even starker, is that in 1980, only small parts of the country were, had median income that were 20% above the norm, above the average or above that. Um, and only the Deep South and Appalachia basically had median incomes that were 20% below the average or below that. Um, now, huge swaths of the country are above or below those extremes. Um, the entire Midwest, most of the Great Plains are 20% below or lower. Um, and so there, there, there has been, you know, a, a, just these, these, this concentration of wealth in, in regional terms has, has grown much, um, much more dramatic. The, what is, what is not, what is not unprecedented, of course, in our country is the concentration of wealth, uh, in, in of, of the economy in certain companies. We are, we are in a sense kind of returning to, you know, a, a, a gilded age moment, uh, you know, 1910, 1915, you know, pick your, pick your date, um, in terms of that, that level of concentration. Um, we, we, you know, we're, we're back, we're back to our own standard oil in a sense. And, and the question is whether we're going to respond as, as, as we did back then. Right. And certain structures and certain ethics too, you know, like a sort of a sense of corporate responsibility, um, uh, guided some actors in the past, but Amazon, you know, is somewhat different, and at least in terms of the way it thinks about its responsibility to its workers and the communities in which it operates. Um, how is Amazon so different, and how does it consistently get away with the types of activities that it does, even even at the most local level? It's such a good point about that contrast. I mean, in, in, in Dayton, for instance, I talk about the just the the way that the the, the industrialists of, of that made that city, you know, what it was just had, just took such incredible responsibility for, for the city as a whole, you know, after the, the Dayton suffered a terrible flood, just a really, really horrific flood of the great Miami river. Um, and, and just, it was essentially that the recovery effort was really, um, you know, led pr principally by the local, by the local sort of corporate fathers. Um, and, and so such a stark contrast with with Amazon and say Seattle, where the whole chapter of the book focuses on Amazon's um, very aggressive and and successful fight to to repeal the a, a local tax that had been passed to to address the city's terrible homelessness and housing crisis. And and it, what was so striking about that was that the company had actually agreed to 
a compromise uh, uh, tax amount, a lower amount that they kind of negotiated the mayor down to, the council down to, and they and they, they got it done, they, they signed it, and then just two days later, the company launches heavily funds a, a referendum repeal effort and um and is successful just by completely outmatches the the, the opposition with 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 their their spending to to get that 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 law repealed uh, the tax repealed so just a much different conception of sort of what what citizenship corporate citizenship means and also the action of citizens themselves, you, I think, make some really interesting points about the ways that it's actually shaped political incentives at the local and national level. Could you, could you talk a little bit about the ways that sort of it's shaping political attitudes, the extent to which um, the sort of the, the attitudes of Amazon consumers who tend to be suburban, high net worth in and around the metros, uh, how they now have uh, a different set of incentives, at least when it comes to Amazon, compared to say the work, the, the workers in 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 in, in the exurbs and in the warehouses. Right. No, and this this is one reason that Amazon was successful in in getting that tax repealed in in Seattle. That it managed to, you know, even though Seattle is very very liberal, um, you know, ninety percent vote, you know, against Trump in twenty sixteen. Um, the the Amazon managed to tap into really kind of a sort of a an Unpleasant kind of anti-government, almost Tea Party-ish, leftist Tea Party-ish feeling that that whatever whatever were money will be raised by this tax, the government will probably just waste it anyway. They won't they won't really be effective in addressing homelessness, um, and also a feeling of a sort of conflicted feeling around Amazon, where in theory they a lot of people in Seattle know that that the company is not is not good in all sorts of ways and is um, and and has brought Seattle you know worse traffic and all that, but and but it's kind of changed the character of the city. But at the same time, also a feeling that, you know, they've also made me more prosperous. Like my home, my little house that I bought for two hundred thousand is now worth a million bucks. Um, you know, I, I'm there's a sort of pride. There was a pride in the golden goose that was Amazon, and 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 a, and a reluctance to take it on. And you see that more broadly on the left as well. I mean, this is this is the key thing about Amazon is that Amazon's biggest demographic, its strongest demographic, it's you know it's it's universal, but its strongest demographic is the upper middle class, middle upper middle class, urban, mostly liberal consumer. That's why you see boxes stacked outside apartment buildings in Manhattan that doormen don't know what to do with. And, and, and there is a deep affinity for the company um, among liberal Democrats who would otherwise be sort of wary of like the big corporation. Amazon was the, is the most trusted entity in America among Democrats, uh, according to one poll. So and that, that affinity has gotten so much stronger this past year, of course, that reliance, um, that cultural, deep cultural reliance on, on the sort of one-click life got even stronger in blue America than it did in red America this past year because blue America was, was strikingly, had a strikingly different risk assessment about the coronavirus. It was even more um, insistent on, on adopting a one-click approach to daily life. And now we're seeing or have seen a pretty aggressive organizing campaign in, in a red state and, in, in, you know, in Alabama. Um, to what extent are these sort of concerns and this push for a reinvigorated organizing labor movement um, at Amazon warehouses, to what, to what extent does that show some promise? And uh, to, what, to, what, to what extent do you think that'll potentially shape um, uh, the future of sort of a public relations with Amazon, the way that we think about 
um, the winners and the losers that Amazon creates? It's, you know, it's hard to say because we, we don't know what's, it so much depends actually on what's going to happen. And, and, um, but the, the stakes are enormous. I, you know, I just think, I think of it kind of in grand historical terms that, that this has become, the warehouse has become sort of the mass employment option now in, in our country. Like this, that they've just, they're hiring so many people that where the warehouses are growing so fast, proliferating so fast. This is where you go if you just kind of need a job at a given moment, the way you used to go down to the mill. The mills, those mill jobs got, got, were uplifted through organizing. They were, they were really low paid, really tough jobs that became sort of middle-class jobs, you know, largely through, 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 through unionization. And so the question now is, will these warehouse jobs also be somewhat, so, somehow uplifted um, in, in years to come from something that's just a $15 an hour thing that you kind of pass through when you really need a job, but you don't stay long and, or that becomes something that can actually sustain some kind of a middle-class family lifestyle. But as far as how it's going to affect our, attitude, our, our view of them, I mean, the fact is that even now, even short of of, or, of unionization, even when we, in theory, know that these jobs are really tough and not being are not being paid enough and are really grueling and rudimentary and isolating, we as consumers have that has not kept us from right. It's certainly not during the COVID period where we've seen just a surge in online shopping. Um, so, it's, what do you see as being the sort of future of One Click America as we move on? from the COVID-19 pandemic, as we're awaiting the results of the union vote in Alabama, potentially at, 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 a, at, a, at an Amazon warehouse there. What do you see as being the sort of future of one-click America, the public's attitudes and critiques and distrust of Amazon potentially, and the way that we think about um, uh, trying to bridge these regional divides that Amazon and largely the sort of one-click economy have created? I, in addition to the organizing, I see really two main strands right now. One is, is, is the antitrust fight in Washington. So much is going to depend on, on what, what, you know, how much reform happens there. And that's going to be fascinating because it's largely an intra-democratic fight between the sort of general affinity um, for big tech among, among Democrats, the revolving door from the Obama administration to the Silicon Valley. Um, and then, but then, and then specific voices now on the left, like Lena Khan and Warren and who are, who are, trying to to you know to do something about this and, and and whether the Biden administration is willing to kind of break from the Obama laxness uh, toward big tech will be very interesting to, to watch um, but then and the other strand is is us is is the American citizen and consumer and whether we are going to be willing to you know not like you know not go cold turkey not like somehow just but but in some way re-engage with the physical world around us after this year and not just in our, in our shopping but but just in all sorts of ways you know going back to the theater after having gotten addicted to netflix and somehow getting back into the communities around us the physical world around us um because if we don't then um then they're going to continue to wither and um, and that's, I mean, the book is part is really meant partly to sort of as a kind of a, a go to all of us to, to some degree, just re-engage in, in our physical space, our physical place that we live, our towns and our cities, um, because they need us. Yes. Um, you spent a lot of time doing interviews and documenting um, the stories and biographies of Amazon workers and people who uh, who have interacted with the one-click America economy 
on the ground. Do you get a sense from your experience with them that um, that things will turn around? Um, do you see some glimmers of hope? The book does end on a pretty pessimistic note. Um, uh, uh, so, uh, so where do you see sort of the glimmers of hope beyond Washington and in, 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 in individual consumer behavior? Uh, I, I gotta say, I mean, I have been discouraged this past year by the alacrity with which people, we all sort of embraced this, how, how eager there seemed to be, we seemed to be to, to take the permission that we had sort of from the authorities to, to kind of just to close in. And I really hope, I really do hope that it passes. I, I do, I did see some, I, I do, I find, I find there are people in the book who definitely do give me hope. I mean, I, they're, um, they're, and I think give readers hope too, that they're, they're, they're small business owners who are still trying to sort of fight, you know, find their way, fight off the, 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 the Goliath. There are, um, you know, this young man in Southeast Ohio who's, you know, came back home from Washington to try to, to help, you know, sort of rebuild his very struggling Appalachian town in Southeast Ohio. He's still at it out there. He's an amazing young man. He's, he's, he's in the book. He gives me hope. Um, I, I do think that, the, I still think that there's something um, in all of us that, that knows that this is not really a good way for us to exist with each other. And, 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 and I do hope that, hope that we can sort of find our way forward from, from this moment and, and, and just get back to some kind of a, a more, uh, a more, a more human kind of way of, of, of living and living our daily life. Well, it certainly is an eye-opening book in that regard, I think, and really exposing, um, I think the underlying, um, uh, facts and features of, American life today, ones that we don't immediately notice be it here in Washington or elsewhere. Um, so thank you for writing it. With that, we are, are out of time, but thank you so much um, for joining me, Alec. And again, congratulations on uh, the book. Again, the thank book you. is uh, Fulfillment, Winning and Losing in One Click America. Thanks so much. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the American Compass podcast. If you enjoyed this, please tell a friend and don't forget to subscribe. To learn more about American Compass and read our work, please visit AmericanCompass.org.